there continues to be a viable purpose for social enterprises. According to the NEE Casey Foundation, there are approximately 500 employment-related social enterprises in the U.S. market today, generating just north of $1 billion in revenue and employing approximately 56,000 people on an annual basis, which brings increased importance to the need to continue to validate these social enterprises from a financial perspective. No one knows that better than my friend Paul Burney. He's the chief revenue officer of Mission Flywheel, which is a fractional practice focused on helping social enterprises prove their impact with measurable outcomes. He's also an ex-Google executive who helped expand their technology operation and embraced the idea of social enterprises. Bernie's background is in sales and marketing, but what he really enjoys doing is building. After funding a digital marketing agency in 2007 and then eventually leading it to acquisition in 18 months, Paul realized how exciting that exhilarating journey can actually be. Years later, he built the first U.S. government partnerships at Udacity. He's building on this success by preparing thousands of people for a successful career in tech by augmenting the internal reskilling programs within large corporations. He's also leaning on his experience in education tech to inspire more young people to pursue a career in technology and having a social enterprise component. And Paul joined me this week to tell me more. I'm Kevin McShane. Let's have this conversation. Welcome you to this uh, the program on this Friday. It's delightful to see you, my friend, and I'm all ready to, to learn about what makes you so fabulous. Great to see you this morning, and happy Friday. And to you as well. So, Paul, I know that you are someone who is constantly curious about uh, technology, business, and everything in between, my friend. So I'm wondering if you can tell me what makes you so fabulous and why you love what you do. Well, 
Fabulous. Those are your words, not mine. Um, but fair uh, enough. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think you know what the the, the unique approach that I take, uh, Kevin, uh, sort of at the intersection of technology and business. We're in an interesting time right now. Um, people talk about the tech industry, uh, and I I come from what you might call the tech industry, um, but. I think that we're also at an interesting time when uh, every industry is rapidly transforming. Every bank, every retailer, every university, however you look at it, they are all trying to look and feel like tech companies. And so um, to some degree, tech is business, business is tech. They're becoming intertwined because the world is transforming uh, under our very eyes. And so I'm just grateful that uh, in my personal life, as well as in my career, I've had the chance to expose myself to emerging technologies. I've I've had a chance to uh, work with these products and sell them at, at the very highest level to you know major corporations, um, as well as you know working with with uh, business owners, small business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, you know everything in between. So what I enjoy, I think, what is unique about my approach is that I take a very analog. Uh, approach to everything I do in the digital world. And by that, I mean, there are some basic elements um, about doing business uh, in technology that to me are um, really important. And I think the main one is storytelling. Um, I love telling stories. I love hearing stories. Um, I love evaluating and, and feeding back to stories. And, you know, if you're in sales, a lot of times people will tell you um, nobody buys for rational reasons. We sell for rational reasons and we sell with rational arguments. But at the end of the day, people buy because they like the person, because the person made them feel good or the product makes them feel optimistic, whatever it is. And a good story is really the best way to convey that emotion. So I think that's what makes uh, my approach unique. Yeah. And uh, Paul, I know you work with social enterprises is the sort of chief revenue officer for a company that you're calling a flywheel my friend so tell me about working with uh, social enterprises and the mission behind flywheel my friend what's it all about so um this is a uh, we're consulting partner to growing social enterprises that want to generate repeatable outcomes um, so if you have launched a business uh, and it's a big idea, you've got some big idea that's going to change the world and leave a mark. Usually you can you can you can get off the ground with just an idea. You can find a few customers, maybe raise a little bit of angel funding. But at some point, you have to put a business around it. And that means you have to find a way to validate your mission and prove your social impact. And the way to do that is with outcomes. So if you are in climate tech, for example, you can say this new product is going to change the world. But if you explain it in the context of how much CO2 reduction you your product is uh, able to generate, or you know how much uh, transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy you have been able to sort of instigate, that's a real story. Uh, I come from the ed tech world where, um, you know, a lot of uh, higher education, they look at placement rates and graduation and enrollment and some of these classic metrics 
um, to convey their impact. But why do people go to college? People go to college to get a job and to launch their careers. So we should be looking at skill acquisition and we should look at uh, job placement and lifetime earnings because those are real outcomes that prove you're on a mission to give this person you know, a real chance to succeed in society. That's how you tell that story. Yeah, and Paul, I want to drill down on the importance and popularity of social enterprises and how it really is providing entrepreneurs and those who want to start social enterprises a real, a real opportunity to find their inclusive footing. So tell me, why do you think social enterprises can convey a, a feeling of inclusion and why do you think they're so popular? Well, I, I, I think that the main reason is because they start from a position of doing good, right? So a social enterprise by definition is a concept or a business model built around the idea that revenue and profit will not be the only impact, right? The impact will be measured in society. It'll be measured in terms of a resolution to a specific problem. And so inclusion is a big part of that because generally the problems you're trying to solve are pretty big and they affect a big number of people. And that also means, hey, we want help. We want people along for the ride. So these companies tend to be more inclusive in who they uh, hire, who they partner with, who they sell to, and they're proud of that inclusion. And so they wear it like a badge and they say, you know, we are, uh, call it equal opportunity, or we are, you know, active allies to these groups. We are LGBTQ friendly, whatever it might be, it all kind of upholds this narrative, which is to say that big problems call for big solutions, call for lots of hands on deck. Yeah, and, and Paul, I know that you're a former founder and managing partner in the digital marketing space for agencies and partnerships that um, from a global level for automakers, at Google, so tell me about that experience and how it's impacted your life and the work that you're doing today. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a story. It starts with a lot of heartache, um, but but as as is often the case when you stick with it long enough, uh, the the tide turns. So when I was uh, just out of school and you know I was in my twenties, figuring out what I wanted to do with my life, um, some people will say. I want to contribute to this, or I want to enter this industry. Um, this is, you know, my idea of success. And I saw one company that really was building amazing products and building a unique company culture uh, and a place that I wanted to be, and that was Google. Now, Google in the early days. Everybody wanted to work at Google. Uh, and, and so it was a hard place to get in. I interviewed about 30 times. And this was over a span of several years. Um, I had great interviews, but I always heard the same thing. You don't have the experience we're looking for. And so I tried to go and get that experience. 
um, by by you know trying to work in the advertising industry. But I was already a few years into my career, and it was I was a little bit typecast. You know, you couldn't really get an entry level job at an agency when you've already been working for three, four, five years. And so it was a little bit of a catch twenty two, something that I know people can relate to. Um, you need the experience to get the job, and you don't get the job without the experience, and then you just find yourself in that endless cycle. So what I found was, um, as uh, you know, as as I started to think creatively about how I could achieve this goal, I realized if I can't get hired into the job that I want, I should just create it for myself. And I founded a digital agency called ClickSharp. Um, and I began to establish my skills, uh, working with all kinds of clients. I worked with small businesses and entrepreneurs, and then I also got consulting gigs with LG and PayPal and Soros Foundation, um, Miller Coors. I started to get really interesting work, and it turned into a great entrepreneurial experience. Um, the agency got acquired. I joined uh, a, a group at the time. They were called Web Liquid. Uh, today, they are called House of Kaizen. Big global agency. Well, you know, big for me. Uh, it was uh, about 35 people. And I joined as a managing partner. And I started to find um, that I could, I could use my skills at a higher level. Uh, I built a whole new search marketing department and had the experience of, of leading it globally. And that led to a career at Google where I spent years working in the automotive industry as the face of global global partnerships, um, working with big automakers, General Motors, uh, Fiat Chrysler, Daimler, BMW, um, and then ultimately also leading an industry development team supporting the whole automotive workforce at Google. So 300 people all working all over the world on all automaker business. It was about a billion dollar business and we were the ones sort of behind the front lines, uh, writing sales narratives, identifying big bets for, you know, big, uh, you know, sort of growth opportunities. Um, it was amazing. Fly around the world, meet C-level executives, um, you know, support this team, do, you know, amazing research. And it was just everything it was cracked up to be. Working at Google, you know, was, was an exciting experience. I got so much out of it, great relationships, great experiences. Um, and then at some point, it was time to turn the page. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk about turning the page, Paul. It seems like everything today is a part of what we call a digital transformation. And I'm curious, curious how do you think the digital, the digital transformation has been a competitive advantage both at work life and play by friends so what do you see as the competitive advantage as we go through this digital transformation well it's an important question kevin and i think you know there's always everything's a double-edged sword with technology um so i want to answer this question very carefully um i get into a lot of conversations about how technology is moving us forward as a society i get into just as many conversations about how it's threatening society. Um, and I, I find those frustrating. Um, not to say I don't like to have those conversations, but there's a there's a tendency to think that if we critique what's wrong in tech, um, that we, we seem to forget that if it's already out in the wild, there's no way to put it back in its shell. 
Um, so it's out. It's out there. The cat's out of the bag. We waste all this energy talking about how we're going to interfere with something that cannot be stopped. And instead, we should be talking about how to manage technology and the impacts of this digital transformation in life, work, and play. So how does it manifest in our lives? And where are we going to put up boundaries? And what are the trade-offs we're willing to make? Um, basically, how can we keep our eye on making progress instead of getting dragged under? So I'll give you an example. I have an 11-year-old daughter. Um, she would love to spend every waking hour on a mobile device if she could, if she was allowed to. So smartphones and social media for any parent are kind of a scary thing. Um, I've seen enough in my technology career to have a good understanding of how those products are built, how they interact with people and how they frankly evolve, not just to for a user experience, but also for a for commercial gain, right? You look at the evidence, it's not good, um, especially for younger kids. They don't yet have social emotional skills to process information. They're like deer in headlights. But at the same time, in my life, in my work, I depend on LinkedIn for my business. It's a critical tool for networking, for business opportunity, for thought leadership. And so I think the key word here, Kevin, is progress. How are we defining useful applications that are actually helping society? How do we take this tech and use it in such a way that we are creating good, that we are moving forward, not backward? Um, and so it's clear that the problem is at a scale now where we really need more regulation. We need thoughtful laws and barriers put in place so that big companies don't just run rampant and build tech that doesn't serve a higher purpose. Um, so it, it's complex. Um, I think there's many pros and cons to all of this transformation. And really what it comes down to is, are we using it to solve more problems than we're creating in the process? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Paul, I know that you describe yourself as a social impact operator. And I also know that you're a classic car enthusiast, my friend. So how do those two things intersect? And how do you define a social impact operator? Okay. Um, a social impact operator, I think of it quite simply, Kevin, as somebody who can get their hands dirty instead of just talking about the problem. And then don't get me wrong, talking about the problem is the starting point, right? So long before we had, you know, solutions to solve the climate crisis, it began with dialogue. It started with major global discourse, you know, at a, at a government level, at a consumer level, and everywhere in between, we had to begin identifying the problem. But at some point, people need to roll up their sleeves and start building products and solutions and start really hammering away at problems. An operator is somebody who takes the idea, whether or not they had a hand in creating the idea, they take it and run with it and make it actionable, and translate it into, into motion, right? Um, and so it's interesting you bring up the classic car enthusiast uh, piece because that is a part of my personality that I need to figure out a way to reconcile. Um, as a kid, I always loved cars. Uh, I, I was, uh, since I was a young kid, uh, when, when I was real young, we lived in Hamburg, Germany, uh, right in the middle of the city, big city, tons of cars going past my window every day. And I was three, four years old, looking out the window, naming all of them. And those were some of my earliest memories 
I absolutely loved cars. The fact that I got to work in the automotive business for so many years was just pure, you know, it was a pure joy for me. Um, and I drive, I drive a, a 1989 BMW convertible. It's, uh, it's one of what's one of my pure joys still in my adult life. But that car also emits some pretty nasty fumes out of its tailpipe. And I got to figure out at what point do I decide that, hey, maybe I need to make this sacrifice in support of my bigger mission, which is to be on the right side of climate development. Um, so, you know, there are people out there that retrofit classic cars with electric motors and, uh, it's not cheap, but the, the costs are coming down and I'm looking at doing that so I can one day have a classic vintage electric car. Well, life is all about decisions, isn't it? That's right. Absolutely. And, you know, Paul, through your work, I know that you've had a chance to, to become a published author, a columnist, and I know that you've even... Uh, presented or testified in, in front of Congress, and uh, you've also been a keynote speaker at uh, conferences. So tell me, how do those sort of uh, myriad of experiences impact your life, my, my friend? How have they made you a better person? Well, I explained to you before, uh, Kevin, that, that um, I really love storytelling. I think it it begin it offers like a real humanizing aspect to how we show up in business. And so writing has always been, you know, sort of a, a, a almost like a love language for me. I love um I I mean I as a kid always loved creative writing. Um in, you know, my academic pursuits, I I always enjoyed the challenge of being given some you know basic guidelines and then told give me 1500 words give me 3000 words uh, maybe i should have been a journalist who knows but um i i found that it was a good way to add value to the work that i was doing um when i was a search marketer in my earlier days um i was a columnist at search engine watch which was one of the two or three you know most reputable journals in that emerging field um and i enjoyed it 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 led to a lot of interesting conversations and it challenged me to expand my knowledge and think creatively. Um, so the same thing with, with presentations, keynotes and conferences. I love that stuff. Um, but you mentioned, it's funny, you mentioned uh, Congress uh, testifying. So I was, uh, I testified in, in front of the House uh, Committee for Higher Education about WIOA, uh, which is the Workforce Innovation and Opportunity Act uh, of 2014. So this is probably a topic most of your listeners are not familiar with. I'll be happy to expand on it, but it was basically during the Obama administration, a, a piece of legislation which basically sought to modernize the U.S. workforce system and create connections between education and, and job opportunity. So creating an ecosystem for job training and retraining so that people could have you know, more mobility in their careers. And if you learned how to be a, uh, you know, a, a plumber or an electrician and one day wanted to get into tech, well, my company at the time, Udacity, we were offering a platform for learning. And so Congress was taking a lot of interest in 2021, in the middle of the pandemic, um, or I guess 2020, really, there were a lot of dislocated workers, people who, are, who had been completely blindsided by a global pandemic and were out of work and didn't know where to turn. Now, a lot of those people 
had a chance to retrain for technology careers, and we were helping them make it happen. But we were lobbying Congress to start to modernize the system because there were, you know, WIOA was a built on a, a 50-year-old infrastructure that really desperately needed some, some modernization and innovation. And so my testimony in front of that committee was about highlighting all the things that were broken, but especially putting it into a narrative about all of the productive uses that that system could be used for uh, if it modernized. So by shining a little bit of sunlight on a really kind of broken part of US government, I think we did our part to change the conversation and say, hey, look, with a little bit of change and a little bit of elbow grease, we can work at this problem and and solve something much, much bigger than than just ourselves. Yeah, it's uh, an, uh, an important co conversation to move the needle of progress forward. So I appreciate your work in that regard. And, and Paul, I'm curious to ask you, how do you think uh, the evolution of technology can help us build better relationships. And the second part of that question is, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the concept of allyship and really embracing uh, different groups that you may not necessarily, necessarily associate with. What are your thoughts there? So let's, I mean, I'll, I'll take those in order. Um, meaningful relationships. Um, I think that, you know, what, what technology really can do is shorten distances, right? So um, the ability to bring closeness into a relationship where it previously didn't exist, right? You, you look at how globalized the world is today. Um, the fact that I can be in touch with former colleagues, with um, you know, former classmates, with relatives, I could be talking to people, you know, halfway around the world in New Zealand as easily as my neighbor across the street. Um, that's an incredible byproduct of technology that we've shortened distances and made it so easy to feel like everybody is our neighbor, right? And that's a that's a beautiful thing. Um, now that that brings with it some baggage, but uh, I think we we need to appreciate that technology has enabled that in a really productive way. So then you start to drill down and you say, okay. Distance in the literal sense is like from here to New Zealand. Okay, that's many thousands of miles. Got it. What about distance in the more conceptual um, definition, right? The distance between different groups in society who don't talk to each other enough, who don't uh, communicate well, don't understand each other. Um, for example, underrepresented groups in society that are cut out of the mainstream. I mean, I was working, you know, for the last few years in ed tech, I was working with populations specifically that weren't able to go and get four-year degrees. Um, why? Because of income, because of the lack of the network, because of the lack of basic institutional knowledge for how to work within that system. So that creates conceptual distance, right? They might be down the street from the president of the university they want to get into, but for all intents and purposes, they might as well be a million miles away. That conceptual distance needs to break down as well. And I think, you know, to use your point, allyship and inclusion, these are ways that we're going to get there. We need to have an honest conversation about the gaps we're trying to close. And in tech, 
credit to the tech industry, while they haven't made a ton of progress, at least they have owned the problem and been very honest about their role in it. So Google, uh, Microsoft, Amazon, a lot of these companies have taken very public stances and they've said, look, our workforce is not where it needs to be in terms of parity, in terms of racial, gender, ethnicity, whatever, however you define parity, the composition of this community at our company does not look like the society in which we are a part. And so we need to fix that. And now how you do it is something that I think the industry is still working out. But just by planting a stake in the ground and saying, we're going to look at this from a purely rational point of view, take the emotion out of it. That's where we get into trouble, right? Just say, if there are not enough women, Black, Latinx, LGBTQ, veteran, neurodiverse, if there are not enough of those people to mirror their relative representation in society, well, then we got a problem. And that's a gap. And we measure the gap. And that helps us prioritize. That helps us allocate resources and make sort of differential investment into fixing it. Um, I don't think anyone has really figured it out, but I think there are definitely some people that are ahead of the pack in their progress in terms of solving the problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, well, how to, another way we can solve that problem is get more young people interested in a field and career in technology. So how do you think we do that? And how do you think social enterprises can really validate their importance moving forward, in your opinion? So I'd like to think the industry is exciting enough that it shouldn't be hard to get people interested, right? Getting getting someone to uh, pursue a career in a very dynamic field with high social mobility, with a lot of prestige, um, with a lot of relevance to our day-to-day -day lives, I'd like to think that's relatively easy. Um, however, there is a challenge, which is that, you know, getting people interested and getting them in the door are very different, right? And so we need to evolve into more of a skills-based um, type of a, a, an environment where people get in to these coveted positions, not because of where they went to college, not because of who they know, but because they have demonstrated success in acquiring and applying the skills that make them useful at that job. It sounds really obvious, but our labor economy really hasn't worked that way. It's getting, it's moving in the right direction. We're making progress. And a lot of it is really the grunt work of breaking down job opportunity and deciphering what that means in terms of skills. Um, the Open Skills Institute is a fascinating initiative to really pick apart all of the jobs that people do in society and break it down into a few tens of thousands of skills that contribute to that. And by, by mapping the world of work into this spectrum of different skills, we can say, hey, if you want to get to here, forget about what you learned and forget about who you know, just go and get these skills, acquire them, show that you can apply them, show that you have success doing so. And that's going to that's gonna make our labor economy a lot more of a meritocracy. Um, and, and so then the question is less about getting in and it's more about how do you thrive in these careers? Um, and so hard work, you know, 
priority number one, two, and three, just work hard. That is the X factor. Everyone's always looking for some silver bullet. Like this is what it takes to succeed. There is no other answer. You just work hard. If you work at it long enough and you have good mentorship, you will get through. But I think really what's interesting about the social impact angle of technology is um, the problems are becoming too big to ignore, right? I mean, all it all, all you have to do is think about the latest climate disaster. Think about, you know, the the sort of spread of, uh, of, of misinformation or the um, the, the declining enrollment in college. Look at these social problems that are, uh, you know, sort of manifesting right under our very eyes. The need for solutions is obvious. And I'm really impressed. Gen Z, the next sort of generation of our workforce, has shown much more than their predecessors that they have the appetite and the skills and the desire to solve these problems. So I think they're going to be a good role model for the generations to come. Yeah, and Paul, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the future of social enterprises and how they become more visible moving forward. Um, I think it comes down to storytelling. I think, you know, yes, the grunt work of helping them grow, um, helping them understand their customer and convey their mission, um, you know, all of the work that is done to create an effective revenue model around the mission that they're on. I mean, that's what Mission Flywheel does, and that's important. But at the end of the day, we need to have a way to tell a story that says we were here, we chose to take the problem head on, we did this, and this was the result. Um, ultimately, if we're successful, we will make the term social entrepreneurship totally obsolete. You won't need to explain it anymore because the only businesses that are around are the ones that are solving big problems. We're headed in that direction. And I think that, you know, it's only going to continue. Yeah. And, and, you know, Paul, my final question for you this morning has to do with your own personal and professional legacy, my friend, and how you will want that to be defined. That's a good question. Probably something I should think about more. I'm uh, I'm very, very focused on the present. Um, and then every once in a while, I think about the past and try to revisit things that I've learned to apply them in the present. Um, and so, yeah, you need to think about the future. Um, you know, the future of industry, the future of, you know, our, our clients and the relationships and the work we're doing, that's all important. But if I think about my personal future, um, it doesn't have much to do with with uh, business or social impact or anything. I think it just comes down to people. Um, I want my legacy to be that I was a decent person and that I was a good leader that got the most out of people, created more opportunities uh, than than I used up, and uh, basically, you know, left the world a better place than I found it. Yeah, and a quick a bonus question for you, Paul. I know that you graduated the University of Michigan, my friend. So is Michigan going to finish the job and win the whole thing in college football this year, my friend? Undoubtedly, yes. We've got uh, an obligation to get our coach, Jim Harbaugh, back on the sidelines to, uh, you know, to, to, to be coaching in the playoff. Uh, I think it's inevitable. It's, uh, it's just waiting to happen. 
Well, yeah, just before I ask you about people, I can uh, get in contact with you, my friend. I would be remiss if I didn't say go blue, right? That's right. Absolutely. That's, that's exactly right. And my friend, tell me if people want to get connected with you, what's the best way they can do that? Yeah, um, real simple. Our website is missionflywheel.com. Uh, or you can look me up on LinkedIn. Always happy to continue the conversation with your listeners. Uh, and it's it's been a pleasure talking to you, Kevin. Fantastic. Well, Paul, I really want to thank you for moving the needle of progress forward in the field of social entrepreneurship and technology, my friend. You work in the space and time on my behalf this morning is most appreciated. And I want to wish you a good weekend and uh, continued success, my friend. And thanks for the time this morning. It's most appreciated. Thank you as well. I appreciate it, Kevin.